you all want to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the first 17 verses. And Paul writes, if ye then, and really, that if should really be a sense, since you be risen with Christ. He's not really raising a question. He's saying, you've been risen with Christ. Since you've been risen with Christ, then seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for you are dead. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked sometime in your past when you lived in them. But he says, but now... You also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and longsuffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any. Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on love or charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you were called in one body, and be ye thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So I don't think I'm going to get done today, but this message today is going to be entitled, Our Union with Christ Guides Our Life. Or I could say gives us life, either one. But, you know, Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians while he was imprisoned in Rome. And it's interesting, Paul probably never even went to Colossae. He probably never even made it there. On his third missionary journey, how Colossae came to be, Paul spent, if you go back and read Acts 19, he spent three years in Ephesus, three years in Ephesus teaching. And more than likely what happened was a certain man from Colossae, Epaphras, who's named several times in Colossians and some other epistles. He heard the gospel, Paul preached, was converted, went back to Colossae, his hometown, and began to share the gospel, and there the church was born. That's more than likely what happened. Paul, at the beginning of Colossians, it says that he heard. So he didn't say he was there or he knew, but he said that he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in their love to one another. And his concern, while he's writing this letter, there's some error maybe creeping in, some philosophy, different things, but his concern is he wants them to remain faithful and he wants them to understand how to live the Christian life. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Now one theme in those, kind of a, a reoccurring word in those first two chapters of Colossians is that in Christ, in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the fullness is contained. And if we have him, then it teaches in Colossians. Sometime we'll go through those first two chapters. But if we have him, we have the fullness of God. For he wrote back there, for in him, Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And he says, we are complete in him. When we're in union with him because of that, when we have him, we have all there is to have of God. So in other words, Paul is trying to tell the Colossians, you don't need anything else. He's telling them Christ is all you need. You don't need philosophy. You don't need horoscopes. You don't need Oprah Winfrey to guide you through life. You don't need her power and guidance in your life. He's all you need. I heard this quote from Calvin I thought was very good. Calvin says, because he's all we need, he says, drink from no other fountain. He says, every other source is a cheap substitute. And that is the way it is, isn't it? Because all of us at one time or another drank from another source, and it didn't work, did it? Didn't work. Here in Colossians 3, getting back to this chapter, he's stressing how we can partake of that fullness that we just talked about. 
What we're going to get into, but if you're struggling with sin, and all of us do to one degree or another, and I mean any sin, whether it's anger, lust, greed, impatience, worry, or doubt, if you'll pay attention, he's telling us here how we can get the victory over sin. And it's not going to be through our willpower. It's not going to be just live a moral life, be a good person. It's not going to be like that. But it comes, first of all, by gaining an understanding of who we are. It's got to start there. If someone would ask you, Thomas, who are you? What are you about? What would our answer be? I think most of us, you know, our first answer, you might talk about your job. But after that, you'd say, well, I'm a believer. Or you'd say, I'm born again, or I've been converted, I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus, or a Christian. Now, a Christian would probably be, I think, most people's most common answer, since none of us are Catholics. We're all ex-Catholics in here, I think, aren't we? The one time I would have said I was a Catholic, but no, now I'm going to say I'm a Christian. That's what I would say, the common answer. The term Christian, that's a common term. That's how I was going to probably refer to it all through the message, refer to us as Christians. Because it's just the common way we do it. But you know that term's only found three times in the whole entire New Testament? Paul never refers to Christians as Christians, as believers as Christians. Never does that. Instead, here's the way Paul, and this is where I'm saying we got to understand who we are. Instead, Paul uses the term and refers to believers as those in Christ. Over 80 times he says the term in Christ, or 40 times he uses the term in the Lord. That's 120 times in Christ, in the Lord. And he many times will say we are in him. The way he taught his church members to think about themselves and their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ is they are in Christ. And do we know what that is shorthand for here? That means we are in union with Christ. That that is what in Christ means. It's shorthand for that. He wants us to understand that our new identity is this. We are people, individually and as a group, in union with Christ, spiritually united to Him. Here's what he's saying. We all know about Ephesians 4, husbands love your wives and all that. And it talks about there the husband-wife relationship. And we know in Genesis it talks about the two become one flesh. And he says that he likens our union to Christ to that one flesh relationship. But I'm saying our union with Christ is even deeper than that. It's a lot deeper than that, than even the one flesh relationship with a man or a woman. It's closer than any union we could have on this earth. And so you're saying, why is that important? Well, maybe you're not, but I'll say it, ask it for you. Why is that important? And it's important because without our union with Christ, we would be eternally lost. All of the blessings, forgiveness, life, and power of God, they come to us and only to people that are united to Christ. If you're a Christian in here today, you are united to him. That union with him has had to have taken place. Jesus said this. It all flows through him. He said, without me, you can do nothing. And he said also in that section in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. He that abideth in me, in union with me is what he's saying. Beareth much fruit. That's the only way we can do it. And it says, hey, if we're not bearing fruit, the Father comes along and you're not bearing any fruit and you say you're a Christian, what does he say? That's going to tell him what? You're not really united to him and that branch gets cut off. That's not good. Our life depends on our union with him. That's how important it is. So I don't know if you remember a few Wednesdays back, we had that analogy of the space shuttle docking with the space station. And I said, when they're floating around up there, they're just two separate spacecrafts. When they're apart, nothing can get transferred from one to the other. But once they become docked, once they become united together, through that union, supplies and power and life and people and whatever can be transferred from one spacecraft to the other. And listen, we're saying sinners are out here. Here's Jesus. They're out here floating. They're not united to Christ. That was all of us at one time. We were in a desperate state, floating in darkness alienated, cut off from the life of God out there and without hope. But now that we are united to him, boom, we have access to everything that he has. That's what the Bible teaches. 
And that is absolutely critical that we understand that because our union with him, we're not no longer spectators. We become active participants in everything Jesus has done and will do. Look here in Colossians 3, look in verse 3, it says, we died with him for you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 1 says that we've been raised with him. If you then be risen with Christ in union with him. Verse 3 back there, it tells us our life is hid with Christ, in Christ, in God. And in verse 4, it says we are going to come back with him. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you also shall appear with him in glory. Before we became Christians, we were spectators. But now we are participants. And that changes everything. It really does. It's a big deal. I'm trying to talk calmly. I was told I sounded angry Wednesday. I wasn't angry at all, but I'm trying to be as calm seeming on the outside as I can. But uh, I get excited about things and maybe it doesn't come across right. I apologize if that was the case. But anyways, well, now we're participants. So like this, uh, when a young single woman marries a guy, her identity, it completely changes. Once the marriage takes place, what happens? She's given a new name. And with that name comes a completely new lifestyle a new identity because now she is an active participant in everything the man she marries has or does. For instance, if he worked hard to buy a home before they ever got married, when they get married, she participates. That home is hers. We're excluding prenuptials, okay? This is a Christian <laughs> church. But that home is hers. And if he went to college for years to college to make good money, that's all hers. She participates in that benefits. But even while they're married, if he's humiliated, if he's struggling with something, she feels the pain. It's an active participation. They're one flesh. Everything each has, the other shares. Listen, if you are a true child of God, and that means you would be united to the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that he has done you and I are involved in. We are involved particularly, I want to say, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we need to properly understand that if we're going to live the Christian life, live as Christians. Paul, his method is pretty much the same through most of the epistles. What he does is he first states the facts, tells us what Christ has done in us and for us. They're called indicative. They're just the facts. But that is the basis or the foundation for then when he tells you on the basis of that, this is what you should do. If all he did was tell us you should do all this without giving us the basis or the facts, that becomes moralism, legalism. But he's saying before we get into the this is what we should do, right now we're learning the whys and the how we can. The basis for that. The primary need for us to grasp is what God has done for us. Sometimes people are like, well, I don't like doctrine. But doctrine is the basis for holy living. And that's what we're talking about today. Because if you don't grasp what God has done for you, I guarantee you, you will be defeated. And you'll live a defeated life. And the first thing he tells us about our identity is that we're united in his death. Verse 3, for you are dead. He had said the same thing back in chapter 2. Listen, our participation in his death means our death. I know this is not a new revelation, but it's not meant to be. We, if we're Christians and united to him because of his death, we are no longer the same person. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, with him, because of my union with him. And that has nothing to do with feeling. It's a spiritual reality. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, Therefore, if any, if any man or woman be in Christ, if any be in union with Christ, then he is a new creation. And the first thing he says is, old things have done what? They have passed away. So for a Christian, our former life should totally, in a sense, be passed away. All our feelings, ambitions, goals, everything about us. And sometimes we don't feel like that, do we? 
we don't feel like it. We still feel like we're just too much the same person and not enough change is happening. But we need to trust God to make it real. We need to remember last week's message and put it all together. He's doing a work in us that he'll bring to completion. Listen to the words Paul uses. Passed away. Old things have passed away. We talk about people that way, don't we? Well, Mr. Jones, he he just passed away. (laughs) And that's what we need to grasp about our old man. The old us, the old sinful us, the old Adamic us. We need to grasp the fact that he has passed away. And that is our identity. That's no longer us, our old person. And the second thing we need to see is that we are united in union with him in his resurrection. Verse 1, if you then be risen with Christ. Once again, we are not just spectators, we are participants. In Ephesians 2, Paul told us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what he said. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. But he goes on to say, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he has made us alive together with Christ. We participated in his resurrection and has raised us up together and has made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, there it is again, in union with him. Because of that union, we died with him. And because of that union, when he raised Christ up, we were raised up, it says, with him. I didn't write it. You can go back and read it. It's in Ephesians 2. We may even go back and read it later on. But it's because of our union in Christ Jesus. We are not just spectators. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the tomb, it's not a date on the calendar like it is for most people at church. It's not something we're going to celebrate in a couple weeks called Easter. That's not what it is. But it's an event that we participate in. We were raised from death to life through the same spirit that raised our Lord to life. The best illustration we have in the Bible of that is there is Lazarus dead and rotting in a tomb. And Jesus did what? He spoke words of life, spirit anointed words. Lazarus, come forth. And the man that had no life suddenly came to life. His flesh was restored and where there was only death, life came through the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that is what has happened to you and I. We were dead. There was no life there at all. And God spoke to us and in a sense said, Rudy, come forth. And life was born. And from the dead old Rudy, little Joey, a transformation takes place. Life enters into him. And where there was only a dead soul and spirit under the wrath of God, life comes forth. And that happened to every single one of us in here that's a Christian. And that's what he's saying we need to see. God's spirit has given us life. And the third thing, because of that union, it says we are hidden with Christ in God. Verse 3, for you are dead. And he says, and now your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, some people will take that, that that means the work that God is doing in us as Christians is hidden to the world. They can't see it. And I wouldn't argue with you over that. But I think it means that we are hidden in him in the sense we're hidden in his hand, secure in his love, because He is our life. I'm going to quote this verse. I quoted it last week, quote it again. But he said, my sheep, they hear my voice. And Jesus says, I know them. So he knew us before we ever knew him. But he called us out and it says, I know them. And it says, and they follow me. So if you're his sheep and you hear that call, the called, you'll hear it and you'll follow him. And he says, I give unto them eternal life. And it says, they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And my father who gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. If you're in his hand, we are hidden with Christ in God. He is our life and nothing can pluck us out of his hand. And we need to see that, too. It's all part of it. And God is saying to us, would you just please see yourselves as I see you no longer unclean, dead in your sins. But now see yourself as I see you washed, 
clean, raised to walk in newness of life by the power of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, that's how God sees you. And that's how we need to see ourselves. Not only that, your life is safely hid in my Son, in me. The last thing here, it says our union guarantees that when He comes back, He will have us with Him. Verse 4, when Christ who is our life, when He shall appear. He's not going to appear by Himself. It says then, He says, you shall appear with Him. How? In glory. It's telling us here, our life in the Lord Jesus Christ, these first four verses are saying that our life, our destiny, is so bound up with Him. We've been dead with Him. We've been raised with Him that when we come back, He wants us to be with Him. And I'll tell you, the way to look at that is, you know what, everything else is done individually, isn't it? We're raised to life individually or whatever, but when He comes back, it's going to be everybody together. We're all going to be raised up and come back with Him together. No one's going to be a favorite then. <laughs> We're all going to be with Him. He wants us by His sides. When you love somebody, don't you want them by your side? And you want everybody to know it. President Trump, I think him and his wife probably get along pretty good. It seems like it to me they do. But you know, when you see him appear, come out of that plane, she's usually by his side and usually they're holding hands. Supposedly a few weeks back, I guess there was a little something they thought might have been going on. And people are like, well, we didn't see him holding hands anymore. And she wasn't with him. And so they're questioning, is there a problem? I just saw a recent picture. They're back to holding hands and smiling. You know, just think about it with your wife. I mean, are you embarrassed to be out with your wife? It's like, hey, honey, you know, walk 10 steps behind me. This isn't Japan. We like to have your wife by your side, holding your hand and appear with her. And he's coming back and he's going to appear with us. He wants us to be with him by his side. He wants the whole world to know that. We need to know that's how much God cares about us. Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 said, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am. That's his prayer. We're not bugging him. You know, some people, they feel like, oh, I'm trying to hang around this person. I feel like I'm bugging them. Oh, you're not bugging Jesus. Yeah. Nobody is. He wants you to be there. I pray that they also which thou hast given me will be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. I'm saying that to me is a tremendous verse. He wants us to be with him. And that's what Paul's telling us here in these verses. He says, see yourself for who you really are. Your old, corrupt man is dead, really dead and buried, left in the far country. Like the prodigal. He left that old man behind in the far country when he came back to his dad, didn't he? And it says, God has raised us up. We are a new creation. We need to be reminded of that. A totally new person. God has made us. We should be marveling at the grace and love that He has lavished on us. That He has. Like the father of the prodigal when he came back. This thy brother, he said, was dead. Was dead, but he says, now he is alive again. And that's how our Heavenly Father sees us. Whether we see ourselves or others in the church that way, He sees us as alive. We were dead, but if you're a Christian, he sees you as alive to him again. But we got to remember, there are two kingdoms in this world. Talked about it some Wednesday, and only two. Which kingdom, the question is, are you a part of? Because the kingdom you're a part of, it's going to determine your identity. It's going to determine the spirit and motivating power that is influencing your life, that is flowing into your life. Because it's by faith that we're in Christ, isn't it? United to Him, and all of His life is able to flow into us. We have to believe and know that. There's only two kingdoms, and if you're born again, Jesus told Nicodemus, only those that are born again can truly enter the kingdom of God. That's what happens when you're born again. You are literally leaving one kingdom and entering another. We're in Colossians 3, all you got to do is turn on one page, I think, and turn back to chapter 1. I want us to look at two verses there. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where it tells us what I just said. 
Paul writes in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet or suitable to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light. And look what it says there, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us where? Into the kingdom of his dear son. Now that word where it says who has delivered us, that word means rescued or delivered rescued or delivered us from the authority, the power of darkness, and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Translated means you pick up something and from one place, you pick it up and you put it somewhere else. And if you're born again, he has literally picked you up out of the kingdom of darkness and placed you, he's saying, into the kingdom, his kingdom. God has done that. That's what's happened. It's, as they say, a brand plucked from the fire. So I want us to look at this, too, where that's taken from. That's an expression we've heard. The Wesleys used it. It was attributed to them, but it's actually in the Bible. So if you would turn back to Zechariah 3. So Zechariah, find Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and then go one book back, and you'll be there. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Zechariah 3, verse 1, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. I think a better word would be accuse him, but either way. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua, he's the brand. He was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spoke unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. And so they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. And that is a beautiful picture of what happens to us, isn't it? It's salvation, and I would almost say every day, because the devil is right there daily accusing us, isn't he? In your mind, telling you you're not what you think you are. He's constantly doing that. And what happens there? The Lord rebukes him, because the devil's like, look at him. He's got filthy clothes on. And the Lord rebukes him. And there he is, as he holds us in our hands, and he examines us. He says, no. This is one that I plucked out of the fire. This is one I've elected, one I have chosen. And he takes off our filthy garments and puts on us what? The robes of righteousness. Now listen, that doesn't apply if you're living in sin. But if you happen to miss it and the devil's just going to keep going on you about that and you've repented, that's, this is what we need to remember. God doesn't see us that way. The accuser of the brethren constantly. He's an identity thief. Now, they got places now you can sign up so your identity won't get stolen. Well, I'm telling you, the devil is an identity thief because he's trying to get us to doubt the kingdom we're in and who is our king and what is our identity. Constantly, he doesn't give up on that. Now, I always like this illustration Martin Lloyd-Jones used. They got two big estates with the road going down the middle of these two big estates. And on one side of the road is one estate, and on the other side of the road is another estate. One of them is the kingdom of Satan, and the other is the kingdom of God. And this is what happens to Christian men and women, he said. They're in the estate of Satan, and they cross the road and come over, and they're working on the estate of God. And that's how they're doing in this world, in this life, and in this world, working on the new estate. But the devil doesn't leave them alone, does he? He's calling across there, trying to get him come back over, trying to get them convinced that they should be working in his estate or still are in his estate. He sends all his innuendos, his suggestions, his onslaughts and his attack. And so these people over here, he doesn't get rid of the devil, does he? We have to fight all that, don't we? All the suggestions, all the things he's saying. We have to overcome him by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the lamb. But he is trying to steal our identity. And that's where the warfare part of it comes in. We do have to fight him. We just got to remember one thing too. There's two kingdoms in this world. And sometimes you get around people when you're working or you're at school that aren't saved. And we need to remember we're not like them. 
We may look like them. We may speak the same language English. We may eat the same food. But our spiritual experiences and outlooks could not be further apart. That's just the way it is. Because guess what? We've been taken out of the kingdom and put in another. And they're still over here. But we're still with them, aren't we? Now, we need to pray for them, witness to them, be nice to them. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not saying we can't talk to them or anything to do. But we've got to realize we're not of the same kingdom. And the two kingdoms don't mingle. They shouldn't anyways. Go back to Colossians. He's saying here, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. So he's saying, since you have died with Christ and been risen and your life is hidden with him, then our goals, our values, our aims, our affections, they've all been changed. And we need to live that out, Paul's telling us, every day. Every day we need to seek those things which are above. And that is where the kingdom of God is, where Jesus is sitting on his throne at the right hand of God. Because the Bible tells us that is where we are. That is where we are, seated with him in heavenly places. Do you all know that? I want to have you read it. I, I quoted it earlier, but I said we'd probably read it. So if you turn back to Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 6, I'm saying that's exactly what the Lord says. It's a fact. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he's loved us, even when we were dead in sins, he's done what? He's made us alive together with Christ, by grace are you saved. And look what it says in verse 6. And has, this is a past tense, not something future, has raised us up together, that's with Christ, and made us sit together in heavenly places. There's that in again, in union, in union with Christ Jesus. God says that is a fact of Scripture, isn't it? That we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's where he is, and our union is so strong that we're there with him too by faith. We are. And since the one we love is in heaven, Paul exhorts us to seek those things which are above. Because your affections go where? Where do your affections go? They go where the one you love is. Isn't that the way it is in life? So when you're in love, even if you've been married for years, but let's just say you're young and in love, you know how that works? Your sweetheart is with you all the day long. You may do other things, but she's always there in your affections, in your thoughts. She's the one you long for, right? Or he. Works both ways, the one you want to be with. It's the same way if you're a parent. Back when we took a couple trips overseas and left our kids behind, I mean, man, my, our heart and minds were still with our children. We missed them. Our affections were still there. And that's like when these people go in military and get in these wars and get stuck in these POW camps. The fact of their family and that affection and wanting to be with them is what keeps them alive a lot of times. It's their motivating factor. Paul is telling us, though, even though we are here on this earth, is anybody in heaven right now? I mean, except by faith. We have to live in this realm. But our minds, our hearts, and our affections should be where? He just told us. We just read it. In heaven. So you heard that expression? That person is so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Like a guy said, I've never met a man like that. I've never met anybody that's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And I think Paul would say that expression isn't true anyways, because to be earthly good, you have to be heavenly minded. Honestly, that's the way it is. But anyways, how does that true, so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good? It may be you're going to go out of this earth because that's what happened to Enoch. Enoch walked this earth, didn't he? But his affections were where? It's, they were set above. And like I heard a long time ago, it might have been Smith's Wigglesworth said it, there just came a point. His affections were so much up there and that's where he was. The earth could no longer hold him. And God said, come on up. And translated him, didn't he? <laughs> Lifted up to where his affections, thoughts, and desires were. Now, I mean, old Enoch, he might have been aware of the current political scene, the current economic scene of his day, but he wasn't consumed with it, was he? His affections, his desire, his thoughts, his aims were all up in the heavenly realm, in another kingdom. And Daniel, 
Well, Daniel, I'm saying that man had to be aware of the political situation as his day because he's the one that ran the government of Babylon. Couldn't get away from it. But despite that, where were his affections, though? Daniel had a job to do. He was a busy man. But you know what he did? Prayed three times a day. It says this, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he knelt upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Daniel was a busy man in a bad environment. But he walked with God, didn't he? Amen. Kept his affections above and kept himself unspotted from the world. That's what Daniel did. There's a model for us right there. A godly man in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. You couldn't have been any more in it to be the president of Babylon running things. <laughs> they hated him for it. We can live that way. This is what Paul's telling us. That's the way we should live. We can live that way every day. Conscience every morning that we're the Lord's. We're united to him. That bond that's infinitely stronger than a marriage bond and remind ourselves that we are hidden with Christ in God. That's where our hearts are. We can live that way, whether we're ironing clothes, driving nails, mowing the lawn, unclogging a toilet. I had to throw that in for Sherman. Going to school. We could be conscious of the fact that God is going with me and he's walking in me. That we're his temple. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians 6. You are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, do you all believe that's you? Because that's what he's saying. That's written to the saints of Corinth. That's all of us and all of them. No exception. That's not just Mother Teresa. Here's what we need to see, though. Our identity is not just with the life of our Lord, but it's also with his death. Both ongoing. Paul in Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Oh, we like that. But it also says the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. There's an ongoing death process we're being made conformable as well as walking in the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our union with Christ means our union with his death, taking up our cross daily. And I'm going to get into this, but through our death, you know what the purpose of that is? Life comes to others. Explain this. So this man, Sinclair Ferguson, this is just a great insight, I thought, that he had. So this is just surmising, but I think it's a pretty good possibility he's right on this. So have you ever wondered why the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 said the commandment not to covet was the one that brought great conviction to him? I thought, yeah, I have wondered why that would be the case. And here's the explanation he gives. I think this is pretty good, and it ties in with all of what we've been saying. Paul was a very competitive person. Galatians 1.14, Paul says it himself. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of mine own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. He's saying he was the top dog in his age group. He was the religious elite and his knowledge of scripture, his outwardly holy life, his apparent love and zeal for God, he had outdone everybody else. That's what he says. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of mine own age. Except what happened? One day he met Stephen. And Stephen was everything that he wasn't. In Acts 6, it says Stephen was full of faith and power and that Stephen, now Stephen's a young man too, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Well, guess what? Paul didn't have any of that, did he? Paul wasn't doing any miracles. The next thing we read that in the synagogue, there were the Libertines, the Pyrenians, the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia. And it says those schools of scribes and Pharisees, they were disputing with Stephen about 
the scriptures. And Paul would have been in that group. Proud of his knowledge of the word. He would have been. He could have out-indexed anybody with scripture. He could have out-strong's concordance to anybody. He knew that from beginning to end. He really did. Proud of his knowledge. Yet here's what he came up against. We read this. Those people, all of those scribes, all the smartest guys, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he, Stephen, spake. All these experts in the law, they could not overcome, it says, the wisdom that the Spirit of God gave to Stephen in the Scriptures. And Paul is outdone and put to shame by this young guy and his knowledge of the Word. And I guarantee you, he was getting upset. And then, guess what happens next? Stephen is stoned. And when he's stoned, you know what Paul saw? He had to see that heavenly glow that was about him as he looked up into heaven because it caused many of those Pharisees to scream and hold their ears and tell him to shut up. They couldn't handle it because of the anointing that was on him. Paul would have recognized that. And he would have heard Stephen say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. This guy's got everything that Paul doesn't have. And his thing is, we got to get rid of him. Paul's convicted. He's coveting that. Coveting all of that. And that is the principle that we have at work here. We thought I just told you. The principle of how our union with Christ works. Stephen was made conformable to Christ's death. He filled up the measure of his suffering. But through that death and suffering that he had to experience, he brought life to the Apostle Paul. You know how we know that? Because when Jesus, the glory of Jesus, knocked Paul to the ground, what did he say? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Because Stephen and the early church were such in union with the Lord Jesus Christ that to persecute them and to stone Stephen was to stone Jesus. And the Lord went on and said this. He says, I am Jesus to Paul whom you persecutest. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. The pricks of conviction that came because he saw Stephen was everything he wasn't and the way he treated him. And that brought Paul salvation, didn't it? It did. That's how God did a work in him through Stephen. But guess what? It cost Stephen, didn't it? It cost him. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at something here. 2 Corinthians 4, look what Paul says. He, Paul got it. Paul got it, and that's the way he lived his life. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul writes, For we have this treasure, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, he says, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted? but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body, for which we live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our flesh. And here's the key. Look what verse 12 says. He says, so then death works in us. Paul says, I've got to die to all this persecution, all these things. I've got to die being made conformable to Christ's suffering. Stephen did too. But through that, what happens? What comes out of that? He says, death works in us, but life is born in those that he's suffering on behalf of like Jesus did. Does that make sense? The persecution and suffering Paul endured brought him death, the death of Jesus, he says, but through that death it brought life to others, the resurrection life of our Lord. And that is what our identity with Jesus will do to us, our union with the Lord. Like a God said, he's making us like Jesus in the same way he made Jesus like Jesus. He's making us like Jesus the same way. There's no shortcut. How many in here want to see the fruit of the Spirit manifested in their lives? Amen. Oh, that's a good response. Love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. But do you know most of those fruits involve other people and how we react to them? Doesn't it? You got to think about that. You got some hearty amens. I wonder if I'd get as many in the second round. How does Jesus teach us that fruit is produced? Two ways. Through our union with him, which is what we've been talking about. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, in union with me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. But what's the other way in John 15 he tells us fruit is produced? By pruning, by death. He said, my father is the husbandman. Every branch that bears fruit, he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. Purging is our trials that come from dealing with others. Here's what we need to remember. Our fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is for whom? It's for others. Our long-suffering, our gentleness, our meekness, our love is not for ourselves. Who partakes of it? Other people do, don't they? That's what we see here in Stephen. He's got love and meekness, compassion, forgiveness, all of that towards Paul. We see all of that. But it cost him his life. Because Paul enjoyed the fruit of that, didn't he? What if Stephen would have acted nasty and been cursing him? Nothing would have been done with Paul. No life would have come out of that. But when he exhibited that fruit, that fruit had to come as a result of his death. Paul experienced life in fruit, and Stephen experienced death. Death worked in Stephen, but life in Paul. That applies to us. We've got to see that we need to be like that. Paul was like that. Stephen was like that. Our Lord Jesus Christ was like that. That is our identity. As a result of our union with Christ, he's calling us. We've got to die out, so to speak, when someone is treating you wrong, doing you wrong. That's when the long-suffering, meekness, gentleness comes out. we got to respond that way and in love and realize they're eating your fruit. But it's, that's what is going to bring them life. You see that? That's the way it works. And if you think about it, we are the fruit of our Lord Jesus Christ's death. Because we experience life because he died. How? With meekness and majesty. Praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Death worked in Jesus, but life came to us, didn't it? We need to see that's what our identity, that's what our purpose in being Christians is. Grasp what Paul's saying here in these first four verses. Know that our union with Jesus, what it is and what it means. That we're united in his death, but we have also experienced his resurrection power. We're hidden with him in his father's hands, eternally secure. And that resurrection life and power and love is what we share with others. Let me end with this. I don't know why, but I'm on Amazon Prime and they were offering that old Corey Ten Boom movie, The Hiding Place. You could watch it for free. And I'm thinking, you know, I haven't been inclined to watch that movie because it's kind of dark. It's kind of a dark movie. They're in that prison the whole time. But for some reason, I went on and watched it and I actually rather enjoyed it. I guess I watched it so I could preach this message because... I'm trying to make the final point is we need to understand and grasp hold of what our union with Christ means and how it brings us our identity. Because those two women, Corey Temboom and her sister, they knew of their union with Christ and their new identity long before they were ever taken into that prison. Their father taught them well, just like Timothy's mother, Lois, and his grandmother. I'm saying now is the time we need to get ready. Because we think, oh, well, that would never happen to us. We'll never end up in a place like they did. You know what? When she's in that prison, you know what she was thinking back on? She's looking at him, pour this slop that nobody would want to eat. And she's having a recollection, a vision of back when she's with her dad, happy, safe in their home. Life looked like it would be great forever. They made good money, watchmakers. And they're eating this hearty vegetable soup, laughing, fellowshipping. 
If you'd asked her then and told her this is where you're going to end up in a short period of time, she said, there's no way. And yet, that's what happened. But what got her and her sister ready for that? Her father was a godly man. They were Christians. They got grounded in the Word. They knew their identity. They knew of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for them. And when they got to that camp, when they were taken there, and they're in the midst of filth and bugs and sickness and death, because they knew of their identity and their union with Christ, they were not overwhelmed. Corey Temboom was temporarily. She had to deal with hating the Germans because of the way they treated her sister. Her sister never wavered. And they could minister through that. They could minister life to those other people. And they did. A lot of those women in there got saved because they saw the way that because of their union, because their mind was set above, and they weren't complaining about all their circumstances. They weren't giving up, getting depressed and all that. Saying, no, they would teach scriptures, have Bible studies in the midst of this hellhole. But God used that to minister life. And I'm saying, that's what may happen to us. That's what it means. I'm saying, understanding our union with Christ will help us understand how to live the Christian life. And that's how it works. Amen? Amen. Pick up the rest next time, Lord willing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your word and the examples that you have in your word of, of men like Stephen and Paul and especially our Lord Jesus Christ that were willing to lay down their lives so that the power and life of you could enter into other people. And I just ask, Lord, you'll... Help us all to grasp what it means to be united to him, united to the Lord Jesus, and how that changes our identity forever in so many ways. And that we are participants, not spectators, in his death, burial, and resurrection. I just ask, Lord, you'll open all of our minds and hearts today and for the days to come and just make this a living reality. That's my prayer. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.